other than that, we're going to chat for, I don't know, probably around an hour or so. So from now until about nine o'clock, is that comfortable? That's cool with me. You're on Eastern time, right? Uh-huh. Okay. So I'm out here in Chicago. So I'm like nine o'clock, two hours. Okay. <laughs> oh, that's right. You're an hour behind me. Or I'm an hour ahead or I don't know how it works. <laughs> One of us. Yeah, I lived in Chicago uh, for a while. I'm uh, just outside of Indianapolis now. Okay. Yeah, it's crazy how Indianapolis can be so close, but the time is just zoned up. For a while, Indiana was, I think we had four different, five different time zones. Really? Just because of the way uh, the the zones were, there was an episode of the West Wing that the sole purpose was it was set in Indiana so they could make fun of us because the, you know, the, the heroes were driving from one time zone to another and they couldn't keep up with the president. Okay. <laughs> I don't know if it's worth a whole rewatch just for that, but that one particular episode is amusing to us Hoosiers. <laughs> West Wing. When, when, I've never heard of the West Wing. You never heard of the West Wing with uh, Martin Sheen? No, I have to check that out. So, like, is it like a sci-fi series or? Wait, that's a television series. It'll seem a little bit quaint now. Uh, because it's back when Americans had a very different idea of what presidential politics were. Oh. <laughs> the president's the good guy. <laughs> he's, he's played by Martin Sheen, and Rob Lowe is there. And, uh, oh, what's his name from Get Out and The Handmaid's Tale? Josh, can't think of his last name. Okay. Um, great actor, but he's in there. And the dude that got eaten by two T-Rexes in the Lost World and probably has been in other stuff. Richard Schiff, his name I know. <laughs> okay. So, anyway, check that out. If you uh, were watching, I think it was in the 90s was when that was a really popular show. Like the first okay. couple of seasons in particular, this is just for, we don't, we'll call this the start of the show. This is something that amazes me that the writers in the world might want to hear about. Uh, is if you go back and you watch uh, the West Wing, Andrew Sorkin has admitted to doing heavy drugs. I believe he was, I believe he said he was smoking crack. Google search will, will check that. But he wrote back-to-back-to-back uh, to back to back all the episodes for some of the most amazing television in all of history. So not an endorsement for crack, very much an endorsement for the West Wing. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty good. I'll definitely and, have to uh, and the handmaid herself was in there uh, as well and some other people that have gone on to be famous Alice and Janie uh, is killing it you know what this conversation makes me want to go rewatch the West Wing that was a truly amazing show <laughs> okay. me and my wife will have to sit down and watch that at some point so hi there esteemed audience uh, my guest is none other than Andrew Nearing Andrew welcome to the show happy to be here thanks for having me Rob so I am thrilled to talk with you. There's, there's all kinds of, of, of stuff for us to chat about. You've got two different series and a new book that's, that's just dropped, David Massey and the Hidden Underworld. Uh, pull that up, esteemed audience. You can be purchasing it while you're watching or listening to us. Uh, esteemed audience knows that I never make my guests suffer through me uh, summarizing either their biography or their book, because I'll just make a mess of both. And why Why would I do that to you when you're right here and you could say it? Um, so please give uh, esteemed audience kind of an overview of yourself and we'll go from there. 100%. So I'm Andrew M. Nearing, author of David Massey and the Quantum Flux and Corrupted Light Chronicles. Uh, I've got two books in that series. Um, so to really like 
give you a picture about my background is I'm going to take you back to 2019, right? When I first started writing and I know like four books in three years now, is it something like that? But I really started writing because one of my friends died and I figured, you know, it's time to live life, like live life to the fullest, not worry about what other people think. I always thought of these creative, like uh, imaginary worlds, and I'd always get lost in other people's worlds they created. So I was like, you know what? I want to make something that's immersive, that's fun, and that reads in a way that I would like to read when I was younger in age. So I really kind of got into writing the books like I'm right here. If the esteemed audience can see through the, the background. The audience who is uh, uh, listening to us, David's holding up his books, but because he also has the newest cover behind him, the uh, green on the books, I think, is <laughs> uh, covering up the, the new covers. Yeah. But the good news is you follow the link to, uh, to, to, to I called you David, to Andrew's uh, website, uh, and you can see all the covers nice and, and pristine. Oh, yeah. Got them all laid out. You click there, you see Corrupt Light Chronicles, David Massey, and it's all there. Um, still tweaking a little things on the website. It's not where I want it to be right now, but we're getting there. But, yeah, so, like, I grew up loving Star Wars, Star Trek, and... Lord of the Rings, just in general, uh, a big time nerd. And, you know, I'm, I'm pretty young. So like, I wasn't there for the, the, the awesome peak fiction of the eighties and nineties, really, because I was born in 96, but I really loved all, everything I really got into, which was Star Wars, Star Trek, uh, Lord of the Rings, I read Ender's Game, but what really sparked my, like, reading love was in high school, I started getting into, like, mythology, like, whether it be uh, uh, Beowulf or uh, the Odyssey, you know, everybody's forced to read the Odyssey, and I loved it, um, and then one of my teachers had me really start writing, and I remember I would just slap everything on a page and uh it was probably uh unreadable garbage but at the time i it was something that like always stuck with me so i'm sitting there at 2019 my friends pass i'm like i i want to write a book so i write corrupt light chronicles book one and that was like my first real plunge into writing finally got it finished up and published about uh december 2019 right before society completely changed that i was still in college and i remember i couldn't even walk for 2020 so yeah that's kind of the start of the background so i know i ramble a lot no, it strikes me that that is a wonderful time to sing or to have sunk into writing if you could manage it. it. Was right there at the start of the pandemic. Like, oh, the world is way too terrifying. Let me just turn that out uh, and, and focus now on my fictional world. A hundred percent. I I remember just 
deep diving and, you know, I get lost in my own head thinking about all the possible ways uh, these books can go. And I always love, I know everybody says they love a good twist, but I love strong bad guys and great twists that make the book like that end it where it's like, what, you know? And so I try and write them as uh, not as fast as I can. I put a lot of thought and effort into it, but I, I am, I'm not like uh, George R. R. Martin waiting on the, the book for, what is it? How, how many years has it been now? Oh, I have a conspiracy theory. I think he wrote it a long time ago. And he said, well, the only way I could deal with fans, because I have all the money, I have all the fame. Let me just put this in a lockbox. And when I'm dead, publish it. <laughs> that, that goes to the state. <laughs> Because until it's once it's published, even if it's the best possible uh, finale that um, blows away the TV show, wouldn't take much. But 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 makes all the fans happy. Like yes, George, this is what we most wanted. Again, he's already got all the fame, all the money, and it's more likely that some people are going to love it, some people are going to hate it. Like ah, do I have time to deal with angry emails? Nah, let me just enjoy my life, and it comes out when it comes out. <laughs> maybe i don't know mr martin if you're listening come on the show i'd love to know your thoughts <laughs> uh yeah but yeah i love these books they're passion of mine and uh yeah that's so, my fan of twist what are some uh, like you know this is a terrible question because obviously we can't reveal the twist in your books esteemed audiences is purchasing their copy or they've just read it enjoyed it and are uh, enjoying the interview and getting ready to purchase the sequel um, for, for David Massey. But what are some of your favorite twists in fiction? Uh, I love, so I love, uh, let's go back to being a kid. Love Darth Vader being the father. I love the whole, like, Luke, I am your, I don't even know what he act, like said verbatim. So, but I love the whole, like, family aspect I love twists that end up where the main character completely, like, loses. So, like, not like Marvel, so to speak, because no, Marvel, it always seems they beat the bad guy every time. Maybe Thanos the first time, but I'd say... I'd say probably, like, one of the first, like, real big twists and turns, like, it's through mythology, really. Like, you think about the Odyssey, how you think he's coming home every every other chapter, but he gets more and more entrenched in, you know, the Mediterranean, getting lost and all that stuff. Uh, I thought the Percy Jackson... Uh, twist where you know he's Poseidon that big hole reveal like he's Poseidon's son not how it was done in the movie though my my wife is such a big fan of those books and I remember we're watching the movie and she's like every every like three seconds she's like no this is not how it's supposed to be it was there was this big reveal and I'm like I know but what can you do <laughs> well you know with uh, movie adaptations i've seen the some of that what i would consider to be the best movie adaptations and like best case scenario which for me would maybe be the shining 
best case scenario, the movie is also very good. It's a different kind of good than the book, but both are, are, are equally good. I wouldn't, wouldn't skip either. But most of the time, the book is just its own separate experience. Even when the movie is tremendous, don't skip out on the, on the book. A hundred percent. Well, the thing is, like, a book is almost like a movie that you're able to play to yourself. That's how I kind of, like, view it almost. Oh, it's better. You get to pick the soundtrack. You get to cast it. The <laughs> lighting is uh, at, your, at your preference. <laughs> The Shining twist, that was a crazy one where at the end he's just typing it all out and this whole time he's just saying the same thing, going absolutely nuts. But isn't it with Stephen King books? I haven't read too many of them. But don't they get, uh, there's a lot of things that are left out of the movie, so to speak. Frequently because there there have to be because you, you couldn't film some of that madness. Oh, yeah. Uh, something I will say about Stephen King endings, and then and then we'll move on because I have all kinds of questions for you. Uh, but um, when I read on writing, which I think I, I highly recommend, a lot of guests who've come on the show have recommended, it's a great book about writing. But one of the tips that he recommends there is to not to, not to plot your story out, just get going while it's a white hot experience. Um, and get to where you're wherever the ending let the ending uh come to you you think it's going to be one way but maybe you'll be surprised and when i read that i was like oh that makes a hundred percent sense because lots of times i have really enjoyed the beginning mostly enjoyed the middle and then the ending was like what what happened there <laughs> so that is a recipe to ensure you get that kind of ending so somewhere between the white hot passion of stephen king i would never tell you not to write like stephen king obviously that's that's ideal for all of us but maybe with just a little bit of plotting a little bit of looking ahead to make sure that you're not writing sell and you just it just ends like well i'm tired of this book and i already got paid for it so i guess that's the ending <laughs> <laughs> yeah I pro that's great like how he's just able to put it all out there i'm very methodic when i go about it like everything comes to me in scenes and for like months i'll just be writing jotting things down on my phone and then I, it's like almost puzzle piecing it together and being like oh this would be a really cool way to get to this point you know and all that so i kind of have my process is a little jumbled because i myself am a little jumbled uh but you know it's uh it's my passion, so. So, well, you know what? I've got uh, lots of questions for you uh, about David Massey and your process with plotting. Before we do that, though, we should mention, uh, I know that um, you've been very public about the fact that you have dyslexia. Uh, and that, that has not obviously kept you from going on to become an author. When did that present itself? And, and how did you overcome those challenges initially just to become a reader? A hundred percent. So I have a photographic and auditory memory and that plays a big part in my whole like dyslexia story because I was able to memorize all the words and spit like it seemed like I'm reading right from fifth grade from ever since first grade to about sixth grade from when like I caught it. Um, but it seemed like I'm reading. I have no idea what the words actually mean. I'm just spitting it, spitting it back to you. And they're like, oh, well, he's, he's completely fine. He doesn't have any problems. And so since I had this great memory, 
I would run into a lot of the time, especially after I got diagnosed with dyslexia and all that, was teachers being like, I, I don't believe you. I'm not going to. And so there would be a lot of friction there. I remember it had to be at least 14 times from sixth grade to was senior year of high school is like 12th grade, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, so time. At least a dozen times of that happening because they just thought I was lying or something. But really, I had the comprehension was the big problem for me. Like I could memorize the words and spit it back. And it also ties into how I write my books. So I write them in a fast, fun paced way that they're not too big books. It's not like you're cracking open a hundred thousand dollars. No, no, no. hundred thousand word book. <laughs> it's not like you're cracking open a hundred thousand word book. You're reading, you're reading a quick book that's around 150 pages and it reads so fast that it's like, it just plays like a movie. And that's what I love because that's, those are the types of books that I loved growing up was like, and that's really the first book I got super passionate about was Beowulf. And that was only like 120 something pages. And so that's like the real reason why I pulled it off the shelf when I was a kid. And I was like, oh, I'll read, I'll read this like freshman year in high school. And that's really what started sparking stuff for me. And so when I write these books, I write it in a way that's fun. It's fast pace and uh, really like you don't see what's coming next. And by the time you put down the book, you're like, wow, like that was amazing. Where is the next one? You know, and I want to spark that passion for younger readers. So prior to being diagnosed, did you think that um, hearing it and memorizing it was just the way everybody else was reading? I thought personally, I, whenever it was, you know, popcorn, Andrew, reread, big, big dread for me. That was like a giant, like every day in class, I was like, do not call me. I was the kid who would be like the popcorn, you know, because I did not like reading until probably around seventh, eighth grade. But it was, it was a big like I knew other people had no problem reading, but for me, it was always like, uh, you know, those commercials, right? Where they're like, oh, look at our, uh, look at how like strong our paper towels are compared to other paper towels. And they put the rock on and, you know, the one paper towel glides through it, no problem. And the other paper towel gets shredded up and torn up. I felt like the other paper towel there. So that's kind of like the best way I could describe it. It was more like a, I knew I wasn't good at it. Right. Because like, I thought I would like, people would be laughing at me while I was reading or whatever. And I still like, just never understood what I was saying. I remember what was a big seventh grade book. It's like a uh, catcher. was a catcher in the rye. I think it was Catcher in the Rye, but people look at a lot of seventh grades. So I don't know what they what they were doing in yours. <laughs> I went to a Catholic school too, so uh, from kindergarten through eighth grade. So I think it was Catcher in the Rye, but I remember like going through and like 
being called on to read that book so much and having no idea what it was about. That's a risky choice for a Catholic school. Good for <laughs> whoever yeah. put that in the <laughs> Oh, yeah. So when you read Beowulf, you said you're, you're a freshman in high school at that point? Yep. And then that, you fall in love with that. So when does the ship turn around and you become, I assume, a, a pretty big reader, right? Yeah, so I got, I got pretty big into reading and writing probably my sophomore year. I remember I had my, my teacher, and it was Mrs. Topham, and she, she was trans, and this was a big time, this is a big thing at the time, it was 2010, I remember, like, I remember they were really mean to this woman, they would have, parents and teaching at a Catholic school? No, no, so, okay. after eighth grade, I was out of the Catholic school. <laughs> okay, just checking. Yeah. So my, Catcher in the Rye was impressive, that's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> it's the most progressive Catholic school ever. Oh, okay. yeah. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, this was my teacher and she, she got ridiculed. I remember at one of the parades, they, they did a whole float making fun of her. And I thought it was oh, ad wow. abhorrent, but this, this lady really put a lot of time into helping me like free write, like writing, not for a purpose, writing for something I want to make. And I remember doing like a writing 25 pages of gibberish about like a battle between minotaurs and riding rhinos and all this other stuff. And I was like, and it always stuck with me, always stuck with me. And I just like, it got to the point where I'm like, I need to, I need to write in 2019, you know? I'm sorry, you said the, the school made a, a float. The, the, the school did this or the students did this on a school event and they, they still let it go. You know, there, there's no way that that's, that's excusable no matter how it, it came about, is there? I, I know. It was so, it was like their, I want to say it was the like a homecoming parade or some, some parade. But I remember it so clearly because I was there and all these guys were making fun of her by dressing up as her and it was it was pretty bad that was what year that that happened 2011 way too recent 2011 it's crazy how time like you look back and that's like that's only 10 years ago you know it's it's crazy but i i am so thank like if you're hearing this miss topham you helped me so much so thank you. So what did Miss Topple do? She was just encouraging you on a regular basis. She was reading what you wrote. How did she help? She challenged me. So she was like, she gave the, one of the assignments was a free writing thing. And this wasn't a thing in any of my other English classes throughout. It was a free writing assignment. And she could tell I was passionate about the story. And so she challenged me to keep writing more, keep doing more with it. And this was like the first, and like, it's really where it was me working that muscle for the first time. And yeah, I'd, I'd say I owe a lot of my success to her, you know? So this is a thing that's, that's caused you terror if you're going to be called on to read Catcher in the Ryan class. And, and you know that that's going to, that 
but I guess that was a different school. So it wasn't the same mean students who, who built the float, but still students can be mean at all schools uh, at, at that age. So I'm assuming there's a, a lot of uh, personal trauma tied up in that. And then she gives you this feedback that gets you that almost like you're, you're walking for the first time, right? But yeah. you're, you're reading and you're writing. Oh yeah, I went from crawling to to hobbling, I'd say, but it's a start, you know, and stuck with me. And I am just so thankful for like, even the bad experiences of kids laughing at me while I was trying to read, like all that helped get me to this point right now. You know, that's all I kind of think about. So at this point, now that I'm, I'm I'm talking to you, what's your what's your reading and writing habits like now? Do you have like an ideal day? Um, so writing, like when I'm in the groove of writing, I get like kind of obsessive compulsive. Like, okay, I need to write this amount, and I'll just throw myself at the at the computer for hours until I can't go anymore. And how I write is kind of like drafts so my first draft is probably one one whole like big chunk of words and so they're jumbled some sentences are up and down I can really see like my my dyslexia when I do that so it's like I can see like oh I moved this around and it's because I'm just throwing all like I'm not trying to do the final product I'm just getting what's in my head on the page or what's in my outline into my head on the page. And so, sorry, what was, what was the question? <laughs> I was just asking about your average work day, but when you're, when you're doing that, you're throwing everything on the page. You're not worried about what the paragraphs are, the sentence, you're not, who cares? That's, that's next draft. It's just get the story down. So mm -hmm. today, how many hours are you spending and what, how many, do you have like a word count? Do you know on average what that might produce? Oh, I don't know about word count, but I will go through, I think at most I've done like eight chapters at once. And then like that, that was like hours and hours. And I, I just remember sitting there being like just brain dead afterward. But as far as like process goes, that's when I'm writing, right? I say 70% of the time, it's just idea gathering. You know how I said I make the scenes in my head and I'll like place them on an outline and figure out what I want to do with it, figure out my characters, figure out my bad guys. Are my bad guys good enough? You know, I think I'm a big believer in the, the bad guy makes the good guy. So in David Massey, you'll see it, especially if you've read the first one, the dark armored figure, he's like uh almost like a pseudo Darth Vader. This is what I'm trying to trying to pull from the ether, but in his own way, he's and there's big reveals this book about the dark armored figure, but he is definitely one of those characters I hold really near and dear. And I think how I made him uh I probably can't say any spoilers for the first one, though. I mean, so long as it's you saying, I mean, not me. <laughs> well, when the dark armored figure enacted his plot to kind of manipulate David and CP to take out 
the things he needed them to take out. I thought it was very, uh, he acted like Darth Vader mixed with like a, like, a, are you a fan of anime at all? Um, yes, but I am shockingly unversed in, in much of it. Okay. Well, like, I tried to, like, have him be, like, a, a strategist, kind of like, like, Lelouch or something like that. Um, and so, I think it's cool when I have my bad guy kind of dictate the story. Gotcha. So, theoretically, your good guy is only as good as in relative to what he's able to worship your your hero what they are able to overcome mm -hmm. and my whole goal for david massey is i want it to be a long series that really takes the main character david from this kid to becoming a leader like a like i want to i want to have him have just such like character development like i've thought this book I'm only on the second one, but I'm in my head on the fourth one. <laughs> so I want it to be, you see the progression every time. Like David's going to make his mistakes. He's going to get played by the bad guy. But he's going to learn his lessons, and he's going to persevere and become stronger. You mentioned that um, you've got jumbled notes from everywhere on your phone or, and elsewhere when you're, when you're plotting. So how do you begin to put that, because you're writing it, it's still red hot when you're getting it down on the page. So when you've got notes and things, how much of a, do you do like a formal outline or is it just, here's my, my page of incoherent ramblings like Jack and the uh, Shining, where <laughs> it's just all over the wall like a, like a conspiracy theorist board? <laughs> it might be even a little worse than that because uh, I'm also, in addition to being dyslexic, I'm dysgraphic. And it's funny when you look up the definition of that on Google, it says the inability to write. So I'm a walking contradiction. <laughs> um, but so my handwriting, terrible, terrible handwriting. But I will straight up type it out on my phone. And then I always handwrite my outlines. So it might say like five words on that outline, but like those five words are tied straight to somewhere in my memory where it's like the scene. And it's when I start writing, it is this flow. And when the flow comes, it's like, like all of a sudden it's like, I'm going to add this in there. And it's such, it's something I love. It's like spur of the moment from the ether. Bam, here you go. And so, and that's actually how in this new book I'm coming out with, David Massey in the Hidden Underworld, I thought of the whole idea for adding the gods into it. So there's some lost gods they find in this book. And so when you're when you're planning ahead, because you, I know you're going to put in uh, some twists, are those coming to you as you go as well? Or are you planning ahead for the, the twists that you're going to do? Most of my twists are planned ahead, but some of them are just too good not to put in there. Like in the in the moment, I'm like, I'll put this in there, and if I it doesn't feel right, I'll take it out. But it's really like I'd say seventy percent of the twists are planned, thirty percent are not. 
it's a pretty good ratio. <laughs> oh yeah, you know, it's, uh, uh, not that the I I don't know how do you, do you you may disagree with me. I don't know if it's up to the author. Uh, what's going on in your head all the time? Uh, sometimes, like you have a little bit of control, but uh, the story is what it is, man. Yeah, it's guided. I definitely think it's uh, it's a guided thing. I the story comes to me. I'm just lucky enough to be able to write it. Guided like by a muse, or just guided by? Mm, I'd say you know, there's everybody has their own muses. I think uh, God give me gives me some ideas. Uh, you know. My life gives me ideas. You know, I like to pull themes from, you know, things I've had to encounter in my life that I put in there. And, you know, I put things I love from other stories, movies, TV shows. Just pull all the concepts together, you know, mash them up like Play-Doh and form my own, uh, form my own statue. Well, I've seen you. I mean, that's what we're all doing. There's only, uh, what are there? Is there eight main plots, I think? Uh, seven? I can't remember. Check out Christopher Booker, uh, esteemed audience. He'll, he'll tell you the exact number of plots that there are through all of literature. I, I want to say it's eight. I've got an outline. I could look it up, but I'm not going to. Well, it doesn't matter. There's a fixed number of plots. We're all, we've all seen some variation. We're all, we're all doing remixes. Uh, that's just, that is what it is. So, um, I know that at this point, I've heard you talk elsewhere that you've got, you're planning for around three to five books, possibly seven. <laughs> Honestly, I could see David Massey getting to, I don't know why, 11 books. I'm 11. getting. Wow, it has gone up since the last interview I read with you. Yeah. So at first I was thinking three to five, maybe seven, but I'm like, I really want to take david from like in each book have him grow a little bit and it will get to the point where he's like wow that's david massey but he started out as this snarky uh sarcastic kid you know that just missed his brother and grows into this great leader so like that's what i'm trying to streamline i guess and i think i think 11 11 books is more than a healthy amount. <laughs> you know what's going to happen is you're going to think, figure out the perfect way to end it in 10, and somebody's going to listen to this interview, and they're going to say, he promised 11. <laughs> Where's my 11th book? <laughs> I, I love their passion. I mean, I definitely will think about doing next gen and all that with it, too, so well there you go <laughs> instead of 11 books or instead of, yeah instead of 11 they'll get 20 books because you'll do the the next generation it'll be fine <laughs> they're getting david massey's whole life story so with uh, planning out that far and ahead uh, i know obviously you've got some jumbled notes how do you focus on the, the here and now what's immediately in front of you with the story as opposed to getting overwhelmed by all that's still yet to come so I always start with where I want the next book to end. So I want the next book to end this way. And then I work back, kind of. That's That would be the best way to kind of describe it. So is there a list someplace with 11 great endings uh, jotted down? Uh, so 
don't know. It's like, it's kind of like a game of chess, but yes, there is some endings jotted down. Uh, like I got the ending for book three, ending for book four. Kind of got the ending for book five. I don't know what I want to do there yet, though. I try not to box myself in too much. The one, I all I know is the next one, I definitely want it to end here. Fourth one, if I find a better ending, I'll end it there, you know? I think of like a timeline and you chop it up. Gotcha. Okay. So even though you don't know the exact plan for the later books, you know where the timeline's going to be, approximately where the characters are going to be. You have faith that when you get there, the great ending will come to you. A hundred percent. And uh, yeah, you know, I already kind of know how I want the books to end. Like I, I have the overall ending in my head. It's just, I have book three ending and then it's, wide open and then the last endings right there so i know where i want the whole series to end but it's getting there gotcha well that makes sense and it's sort of like any other journey right you have a map you have a basic destination and once we get on the road we'll we'll find it as we go right 100 percent. it's just like a it's like a fun fun ride fun adventure and by the way, esteemed audience, I looked it up because it was bugging me. Christopher Booker says there are seven, seven main plots that you can remix and, and reuse. Five basic conflicts, seven main plots. Look them up. Christopher Booker, do a Google search. You're welcome. <laughs> here, here's <help. laughs> So, okay, so you get the, uh, the, the block of draft down. Uh, and do you go, is it just, does you look back until you get to the end or do you get to the current book before you, you start rewriting and rewriting? So I will go through the whole, like, I think it, it's easier to describe it as like I'm making a statue out of marble. First, I have to set up the marble and that's me just putting everything on the page, right? And being like, okay. Now it's time to get detailed with it and go through and chisel out the features and make sure everything's how I want to be. And even while I'm doing that, I'll have spur the moment ideas that come to me. And I'm like, oh, wow, that is, that's going in the book. <laughs> so I'll throw it on the page. And then when I go, I go through so many rounds of edits on these because I will be doing my dyslexia stuff with it but i'll go through a bunch of rounds of edits make sure this is perfect make it make sure it's how reading how i want it to and yeah uh, your dyslexic stuff what's uh what, what kind of stuff is that so when i so when i throw it all on the page you'll have jumbled words some sentences will be flipped and so I get it to where, like, and sometimes I'll just leave the part that I wanted to put the sentence in, like, leave the main subject out. And I'll be like, oh, I totally forgot to put that in there, you know. And so it's just, it's really just being mindful of my own mistakes and my own shortcomings when it comes to just throwing it on the page the first time. But as long as you keep reading through it, 
and working through it, you make progress. But you're not doing that until you get the full story down at a full draft? A hundred percent, yeah. Your, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? Your, your restraint. <laughs> I need to be able to do that forever. And I, I described this in a, a workshop I'm leading as like uh, uh, taking a shower and drying your legs before you wash your upper body. But you're going to have to dry them again. You're just, you're wasting time. <laughs> doesn't stop me. I'm well aware of that. I'm like, oh, but that part's already written. I don't have to imagine anything. Let me just prettify it a little bit. And then, of course, I'll, I'll realize something that's true about the plot that I have to change all of that again. So, so glad I, I, I prettied it. Do, do as I say, esteemed audience, not as I do. <laughs> you'll, you'll be better. So how many drafts before somebody other than you takes a look at this thing? I have to go through it at least four or five times because on that fourth or five, fourth or fifth time, that's when I get wordsmithy with it. And that's when I'm like, oh, let's put that in there. You know, hey, this reads better this way. And so it's definitely uh, multiple drafts, at least four. Gotcha. Uh, and then who's your first reader? My first reader, uh, probably my wife, and then, uh, you know, I'll tell my dog the story, but <laughs> sometimes I'll let my parents take a crack at it. You know, they, they're, they're great. They'll be like, oh, this is amazing. And I'm like, what, what, what is amazing? All of it. And so I'm like, I like having my, my wife go through it. She's she'll be like, she really knows like where I want to go with the story. She, I'm always blabbering to her about my books, the story. I'm like, oh, I just came up with that, this idea. Like when I actually incepted the idea for David Massey, it was probably like one in the morning, uh, 2020. And we're laying in bed and I'm like, David Massey. And then I went on a tangent about reality changing uh, with a dark armored figure. And she's like, will you just go to sleep? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, and so she she's always the first one to read it. And when she gives you constructive criticism, um, how do you take that in good grace without having that uh, turn into some sort of fight or otherwise impact your marriage? So... The big thing was like I, I'm, I'm a little bit hard-headed and stubborn, uh, and if, I had to learn how to take criticism really, because like I'm I'm super prideful about what I do, but I had to learn like hey, constructive criticism is really good and it can help me get my books to where I want them to be, and so that was like every writer has to go through a uh constructive criticism phase of like having to be like oh let me not get angry at the, like them their objection let me hear it internalize it figure out a good solution how to utilize it yeah but i mean sometimes the problem is readers just don't appreciate our brilliance once in a while that that is true <laughs> i get that way too though trust me <laughs> No, it's never true. Listen to your critics, esteemed audience. Revise, rewrite. 
course. <laughs> once, once in a while, it is true, though. A little bit. <laughs> my, my, my biggest thing is, and my wife always will say this when I get uh, criticism, I'm always like, they didn't read the whole book. And she's saying it before I even say it. I'm like, okay, maybe I, let me, let me read it again. But yeah. So how long does a draft take you to get done on average? And then how between, between the initial draft to the end process, what's the timeline? Timeline. I want to say, so with this most recent one, the first David Massey probably took me around like six months. This one took me around eight to 10 months because I want to take more time and really evaluate the storyline and make sure like it's a it's a wild ride like I wanted this one to be like you you get in and it's immediately a roller coaster with twists and turns you're not expecting this to happen in this chapter and you like I wanted to do ancient Greece right I wanted to put a bunch of uh, mythical stuff in it and I wanted to do like I always like having like some funny aspects in my book you know in this one uh, I add, try to add some like Greek culture how uh, you know like most of the city-states of Greece all hated each other <laughs> you know Athenians hated the Spartans the Spartans you know and so because they're all up until I want to say Persia, right? That unified them, but up until that, they were just the divided states. So um, that first draft uh, of the six six to eight months, that first draft is what, maybe two months, three months? I don't know how much of that time does that take. Oh, I totally missed the, missed the question. <laughs> I mean, there's no grade. You, you, you passed this class already. You're good. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm, just, I'm just talking here. I'm sorry. Um, the first draft probably, like I've had first drafts done in a week, but I would not be comfortable showing anybody my first draft. I think that is that is something I need to like roll up the sleeve. Like I'll get the the first draft done. Like first David Massey, I had it done probably a week. And then months of redrafting, chiseling, and getting it ready. Same thing with Corrupted Light. I probably had Corrupted Light first draft done in about two weeks. But that was seven months of re-editing. That was my first book, too. So it was like a lot of elbow work, learning on the fly, and all that stuff. And then, but this, this, I don't know if you can see. I try to. It's it's my second corrupted light. That one took. I want to say the first draft to finish it was probably three months. So that I mean one week, one to two weeks to get an initial draft. Mm -hmm. So what does that look like? Are you not eating? Not going to the? You're not showering? I get a little uh, <laughs> obsessive with it. Yeah, it's. Uh, I definitely shower. I definitely will. So like, I'll do this thing where I will work so hard that I forget to eat. And then I'll be like, after I'm done working, I'm like, oh, what, why do I feel so weird? And my wife's like, 
you forgot to eat your lunch. And I'm like, oh no. So there's that, like, I'll just kind of like pour my all, like my, my whole, like, uh, mind and soul into these. So. Uh, and then so you take off like a shot. You, you had the, the friend that's, that's close to you dies. You realize that we're all here for as long as we got and that's it. So let's do it while we're here. Yeah, more or less. Mm hmm. It, I'll, let you, I'll let you continue. Well, I, I was going to pivot to, to publishing because you're 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 getting it done. Um, uh, you're, you're on fire. You're, you're getting these books out uh, during the rest of the world's falling apart. You're like, not until I finish my books. <laughs> then you have my permission to fall apart. But until then, I need you to hold it together. Um, so uh, when it comes to, to publication, do you spend any time at all uh, looking at traditional publishing? Or is it just straight to, I know how I'm going to publish this. I want to publish it my way. So I do take uh, the time to, like, I do query agents and do all the traditional path, but I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna wait on others to, for my dream, you know, I'm gonna just get it out there and let the people decide. So how long did you try to play it straight before you decided, eh, I'm just gonna do it? I think it was like, uh, it was at least like six months of, you know, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't trade any of that, you know, I wouldn't trade any of my journey, any of the no's I've gotten. I think they've all, every single thing has led me to here and I'm pretty, pretty damn happy. Well, I should be uh, very clear. I'm a, I'm a big proponent of, of, of self-publishing. Um, just ask you how how sitting around querying and waiting forever would have worked out for him. He's, he's doing fine. <laughs> Would I love an agent? Yes, but I love what I love more is people telling me how much they love my book and like what it did for them reading. And that's something that makes me so happy. So you put the, uh, the, the book out there and how long does it take for it to find readers and what are you doing to get readers interested? So like I'm going on podcasts and uh, you know trying. I have a TikTok, still trying to get that all going. I even though I am a Gen Z, I don't really know how to use Twitter, so I don't really use Twitter. Um, but as far as like how long does it take to get readers? I'd say probably like it takes like a couple months for everything to like flow in, and then. You know, we, uh, we have a positive uh, flow, so that's good. Beautiful. <laughs> well, I know you're, you're a full-time author at this point, right? Uh, yeah, I do. I full-time author, and I also have a, uh, a job as well. <laughs> oh, okay. Gotcha. Um, and then, um, oh, I had a burning question, and I... Uh, oh, no. <laughs> nobody's passing this class <laughs> so um you, you you're putting the books out um you're hitting the road uh, running where do you foresee yourself um do you have like a like a timeline like five years from now i'll be here i'll be accomplishing this here's my uh, vision board or is it i don't know how long i'm going to be alive until then i'm going to write 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 
it's a little bit of both, you know. Um, it so I even though I have two series, I am in the makings of making a third one, and that's going to be a comic book. And so that's another whole a whole ordeal that I've that I'm putting myself through. But yeah, so I want to make a comic book, and that's going to be. I'm nowhere near ready to tell people about it, but it's something super cool. And uh, what, what was the what was the question again? I don't remember. Who cares? This comic book. Um, <laughs> are are you working with uh, with with artists to make this happen? Where are you at in the process? So I I'm in the drafting it, and then I'm gonna try. If you're a graphic designer listening to this, you can always uh, contact me. Um, but I am in the process of trying to get a graphic designer. So getting a graphic designer that wants to make like manga-esque uh, comic books. And I want to get, I want to get somebody who's, uh, younger. I want to give like a, you know what I'm saying? You give a new, a newer, uh, uh a younger uh, graphic designer who hasn't really had their big break yet. Gotcha. Uh, and then they're forever going to be tied up with the tremendous success that this is going to be. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, that, that makes me smile. Was there something about this new idea? And obviously you can't, you can't say much at this stage, but did it present initially as a, as a novel or the, the moment you looked at it, you said, no, this has got to be a graphic novel. When did you know that it had to be, that was the type of storytelling for it? Probably ever since the inception. I remember I was, uh, the time I was struggling for money, trying to just door dash it out. And I came out with this idea for uh, Realm of Champions. That's what I'm going to call it. And it's, what's cool is it brings in a lot of modern concepts mixed with old mythology and uh, it's about as much as I can say. Well, we got a title, so I've already dragged that out of you. We're, <laughs> we're oh, yeah. I got, I had to close the door. I, I was, you were opening Pandora's box. All of these, by the way, all of these statements count as promises made explicitly to your readers. There will be 11 David Massey books, Realm of Champions, coming to you, guaranteed. Seven, seven corrupted lights. <laughs> uh, and then I wanted to ask you also about uh, Books Forward, because um, they, they, uh, they, 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 they found me, so they're already earning their keep. They're the publicist, esteemed audience will remember we had uh, Ellen Whitfield on episode 160 from Books Forward. So she gave us the, our, their, their view of the process, how they work uh, with authors. Now that, well, now that you're on here, we can get the, the reverse tale of that. What was your experience working with Books Forward or, or is, is continuing to be working with Books Forward? Books Forward is great. You know, they have given me like great insight to my own books. They, I use the, the books fluent. They have that whole part too. So it's another round of edits I go through. And it's also a great way that's helped me reach a lot more people. The publicist uh, edits the, the book also. It's like uh, they have like their editorial team that also, like, I get my own graphic designers to, like, design, 
you know, these, these cool backgrounds and all that stuff. But they, they help put it together, uh, help me get it. Anything I need, they're there. So, Gotcha. Uh, so they, they, they do that and they work with you. Then they come up with your points of, hey, this is how we're going to market you to potential great podcasts like the Middle Grade Ninja podcast. This is how we'll get you going. How much uh, contact are you having with them? Do you hear from them on a regular basis or do they launch you? What's, what's been your experience? So some, some weeks I hear from them every day, all day. Uh, you know, it's just corresponding. And then some weeks, sometimes it's like every two weeks I get an update. So what's cool is they will work with me pre-release and post-release. Gotcha. And they know about more or less the strategy, the timeline for when you're going to continue hitting with the David Massey books so they can be anticipating ahead. A hundred percent. Yeah, they're able to uh, really like narrow down all the uh, particulars. Does that add any extra stress where you said, okay, well, I thought that I would have this done in six months, but it's really, it's going to be eight, but now Books Forward has me booked on this podcast for this date. Things of that nature hasn't come up yet. It's always, it's always easier just to put the book out, but it's better to take your time. What, uh, other than coming on this show, obviously, what has been the most effective marketing that you found so far? Um, I, we did some campaign that really like shot up. It was some campaign that shot my book up into like the top 10,000 for on Amazon, which was crazy. That was in October. And that was for the first installment of David Massey. And so that was like, I was over the moon then. And so... Yeah, that was probably the best, the best way we went about it. A bunch of people immediately bought it. I think it was a, I want to say it was like a ebook, something. And that builds the 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 expands the base for all the fans that are eagerly going to be buying books too, and and counting down till you get to to book eleven. Oh yeah, and you know it's funny because you don't think a book this big could build a base that could last 11 books, but it does. No, I think, uh, I think you're a genius for the, the shorter book because I think that um, was a much easier read if somebody hasn't heard of you before. Like, oh, okay, well, it's a short book. I can give this uh, a shot. And they enjoy it. Plus, they get that, that gratification. Uh, for me, it was the, the book at gratification. If you read so many books as a child with book it, you can get a free personal pan pizza courtesy at Pizza Hut. Some of esteemed audience will know what I'm talking about. Others will be thinking, my God, I would have read more if I could have got pizza. Yes, you would have. It was an amazing thrill. Like, oh, I, I won this thing. <laughs> so the shorter book gets you to that stage faster. <laughs> I love it. I love it. The the pizza incentive is a strong incentive indeed. Um, you know, it doesn't it doesn't have to be food esteemed audience. It could be a, a video game or, or anything else. You're a big video game fan, right? Oh yeah, big time. I I love video games. What uh, what are some of your favorites? Oh man, I love so my first the first like real video game. Uh, this is gonna be, I, it was Halo that got me into it. Halo 1, I remember it was like 2003, something like that. I'm like five, six years old playing Halo and just absolutely 
demolishing my dad. <laughs> Made him quit video games. I'm the reason why he doesn't play video games anymore because I would end up spawn killing my dad. He gets so angry and, you know, I'm a kid, so I'm like, ha, 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 you know, and so I'm having a great time doing that. And then so Halo is what kind of got me into, into video games, but I'd say I, I go on these weird rotations from playing Pokemon to playing For Honor, which is Knights versus Samurai versus Vikings, to playing Rocket League, which is like a like soccer but with race cars, um, and then yeah, that's like the main rotation I'm on. I'm on right now is Pokemon, uh, For Honor, and Rocket League. But I also went big into like playing like Smite, League of Legends. Uh, I think notable mentions first and foremost are the Elder Scrolls series. That is, that, even though it came out in 2012, 10 years ago, I still don't think there's a better role-playing fantasy game out there. Like, there's some that come close, but I don't, I don't think anything's top Skyrim yet. I will confess to you that I only played Skyrim for the first time last year. Really? So... What did you what did you go with? What was the what was the build? What was the character? I need I need to know it all. I need to know it all. Uh archery and stuff. I know where, where I put a lot of my points. Uh and then um I also whatever the spell is with the, the flames, I max that out. I just love setting things on things and people on fire, especially the dragons. I mean it's only fair they did try to set you on fire, you set them on fire right back. I mean that balances things out. You know what happened with Skyrim is it missed me the, the first time because it had this, the worst save system. And all these generations that it's not that much better. There's still not a real reliable autosave. But by, by, by last year, I played it in virtual reality was the reason I was willing to revisit. All right, if I can have a dragon towering over me, it feels like real enough. I'll do this. Because when I first tried, I got stuck. I, I used up all my saves on the same spot, but I, I went into a place where I wasn't the right level. I was like, ah, stupid Todd Howard. This game is terrible. I'm done forever. <laughs> And, it, and until I got a, a virtual reality helmet, I was like, all right, what can I play on this Skyrim? Okay, fine, I'll, I'll give it a shot. Yeah, the Elden Ring uh, Dark Souls player in me would always want to go to those difficult areas and just just brutally grind it out till you get better. <laughs> the masochist. <laughs> yeah, like, those games really, like... They're definitely notable what mentions too, Elden Ring and uh, Dark Souls. Those are games that they toss you in. No map. No map. No no bearings. And they give you boss-level characters that just absolutely demolish you. Like, from get-go, just put you, like, put your nose in the dirt and make you feel bad about playing the game. <laughs> From software, that is, that has the effect that if I see that that name from software on there, I'm like, oh, that's not a game for me. Uh, <laughs> I've got, you know, I've got a child, I've got the show, I've got all my video game time is relatively limited, so the amount of time I'm going to put into replaying, give me an Assassin's Creed. I know it's an easy game. That's what I like about it. I always win. It's great. <laughs> oh yeah. Well, congratulations on being a dad. That's that's awesome. How's that been? Um. 
it's uh, everything they say it is. Uh, it's one of the few experiences in life that really lives up to the hype. Um, so there's, there's lots of experiences where like everyone tells you that like your, you know, your senior year of high school is going to be the most amazing thing ever. And then it happens. It's all right. It's pretty good. Um, but having a child really is everything they said. It immediately reprioritizes everything. Um, my days of, of maybe trying to tough that out with a, with a Dark Souls game as it's gone. I can't. <laughs> I'm half awake from, from dadding. I've got an hour before I pass out. Give me something I can win. <laughs> I totally understand. I probably wouldn't play uh, any of those games if uh, I only had an hour, you know. Uh, I don't know. Fatherhood's always been something that I have always wanted to do and wanted to be great at. I've always wanted to be a great dad. So that's something I look forward to in the future. Well, I'm uh, watching our time and it flew right by. It always does. But esteemed audience knows that I would never forget to ask Andrew Nearing, have you ever seen a flying saucer and or a ghost? I have seen a ghost. Go on have not seen so the only flying saucer-esque thing i can think of seeing would be i just moved in this new place and around like one in the morning like just a beam like not like a car light but like an intense beam of light will just be shining through like our shutters and i'll be like and it'll be gone and so like i don't even get out of the bed that's like that's the ufo but as far as the ghosts the ghosts plural yeah so growing up in my parents house like they have this long hallway right and my my room is probably right adjacent to my parents room and then there's the stairway there's my brother's room and then there's another walk the walkway continues long into the game room now that door i've gone out into the in into the hallway and look I, I make sure not to look down that way because i swear every single time there's like a 10 foot tall shadow just standing there and it is like it is something that just like in like even when i walk out there the vibe is different like it's different there's nobody there it's just it's like that that chilling silence where like you just kind of like feel your heart going and if you look there and the heart drops and you run to the bathroom turn on the light but there's that and then i think there was a that's like the big instant i've seen a lot with the ghosts now i've had like i, I wouldn't even I, I i wouldn't even say they're dreams like they're almost lucid dreams like waking up and like seeing a face and then rubbing my eyes and not seeing it and being like oh i guess i was just tripping which <laughs> i mean occam's razor <laughs> and they always say there's uh i remember my teacher always said this too he's like sometimes like i if i if you catch me looking into the corner like very scared that's because like uh a light's coming into my eye and I'm seeing a shadow. And like, sometimes I'll see these shadows like dart when I'm like entering room or like just moving around and like, I'll, I'll get spooked. And like, I definitely saw the shadow. Was it a ghost? That's the question. I think there's a whole nother novel series right there. <laughs> you finish up David Massey in the realm of champions. My God, it's time to... <laughs>
is writing is something I never want to stop. I always, I, I even have ideas for series that I don't even know if I'm going to do. What's your, uh, what's your favorite thing about writing? Uh, for me personally, or seeing other people's reactions. Ah, for you personally. Me personally, would probably be like, I love just thinking of like, like these characters. They almost like they seem alive to me. Like when I'm like thinking about them, like they're like, like they're actually there, you know. And so, what I love is thinking of these worlds, getting lost in them, and then. I just love it all, man. Love it all. I think that's the perfect note to end on. Uh, Engineering, where can esteemed audience find you online, follow you on social media and all that good stuff? You can get me at TikTok at Andrew M. Nearing. Uh, you can look, look up my uh, website, andrewmnearing.com, or you can just search me up on the web. You should be able to find uh, my, my Amazon and all that. And as always, esteemed audience, for uh, more information about me and more importantly, for interviews with thousands of authors, editors, literary agents, publicists, book people, the world's best people, head to middlegradeninja.com. I wrote a book. It's called Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees. It's one of many books that I've written, but that one, Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees, you can get as an audio book. A paperback or the ebook is free. Yes, free to download whenever you're watching or listening to me, wherever fine ebooks are sold. So check that out. I'll get you hooked. You'll come back for more with Banneker Bones and the Alligator People and Banneker Bones and the Cyborg Conspiracy. That will hold you over until Book 11 of David Massey is finally available. I, and as always, God willing, that alive. I'll see you next week. <laughs>